Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hey everyone, it's Kevin Mater from Quad City Arts here on There's No Business Like, and I'm joined with my friends, Josh. Josh Benson, Marion, Illinois at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Katie. Hey everyone, Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Danielle. Oh hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. And Brian. Hey Kevin, Brian Zelmer, KU Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. This week, Katie and I sat down with Simon Shaw while we were at the Midwest Arts Expo and had a great conversation with him. But before we get to that, I want to ask you all, what band would you follow around the country? And Danielle is not allowed to choose Taylor Swift. So Here's the thing. 2023, Danielle, would 1,010% follow the Taylor Swift tour. Why? It's currently on its way abroad. Um, and so, like, I would get to see, like, literally the entire world. Um, and that would be amazing. Unfortunately, I'm not independent, well, independently wealthy and can afford any well, of let's, that. Let's pretend I can't like afford you to go to one. Money is no object. Who would I you mean, follow absolutely. Around? I'm following her. Like, like literally she's going to the entire <laughs> world, but I will say 2004, Danielle, a hundred percent without a doubt, I think probably tried to follow in sync around the country. I mean, did you read my mind? Because NSYNC is also my answer. Uh, and they might be getting back together, you guys. And they're, I mean, I just am losing my mind over here. So hands down, NSYNC. So I guess if you guys don't hear from me yeah. and Katie for a while, we're in a Winnebago <laughs> following NSYNC. <laughs> Absolutely. That's some, That's going to happen someday. I have a feeling. There's so many, but I'm going to go with our buddy Jacob Deaton. I just like hanging out with that guy, and I think it would be a lot of fun, and they play a lot of great music. How about you, Josh? Honestly, not that far apart in my life, but it would have been either Death Cab for Cutie or oh. Arctic Monkeys. This one was actually really hard for me to really think about, uh, but I think just recently I went and saw a band called Electric Callboy, and it was one of the most fun concerts that I have been to. So. As of right now, like I, I think I would follow them. Mm, nice. Well, it sounds like we're all going to be spending a lot of money on the road following all of these amazing musicians around the country. Um, but this has a direct relation to one of Simon Shaw's earliest uh, moments in his career. So Kevin and I hope you enjoy our conversation with Simon. Hello, my name is Simon Shaw. I'm a booking agent, manager, father, husband, owner of Shore Entertainment Group. Excellent. Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. So I'm joined here with uh, Katie Miller as a co-host here as well. So let's go ahead and get started with your origin story. How did you get started in the arts? Well, I got started in the arts going to see pantomime as a little boy. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, yes, I did. Um, <laughs> sort of in, I grew up in London going to theater, musicals, pantomimes for sure. Never really got into acting, although I was Prince Charming in the school play at the age of 11 and sort of decided that was going to be the zenith of my career and stopped at that point. <laughs> I mean, go out while you're on top, right? Yeah, yeah. I got to kiss on the cheek the best looking girl in the school. Like, come on. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I retired from acting and, and then sort of went about and graduated university with a degree in government and politics, went off to California to coach soccer and when I got back to London, a friend of mine was working at a music merchandise company and said, hey, do you want to go out on the road? I said, yes. Uh, so I spent about eight months touring the UK and Europe with various uh, pop bands, 
I did some brand new heavies, some Jamiroquai. Jamiroquai, uh, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, but I did some gigs, hang out with JK and did some Pretenders gigs, did some Gypsy Kings gigs, did some Cocteau, Quin- Cocteau Twins gigs. Spent about eight months touring the UK and Europe and had a brilliant time, but didn't really see anybody that I wanted to be. And when I got back to London, I finally, I was able to get a job at a promoter's office. And in England, you know, the promoter, they find the artist, they book the date in the theater, they place the ads in the newspaper, they promote the shows. And that was pretty great. I worked for a guy uh, who had been in the business since the late 50s and was a sort of legendary promoter in the UK. When I joined him, he'd just gone bust for the third time, but was still driving around the center of London in his Rolls Royce. And we had offices in Soho <laughs> and, you know, he spent his time fighting creditors and not giving anyone any money. Mm. But it was an amazing education and we, I worked with, there for five years and you know, promoted shows all over the UK, different genres, just learned a lot. In that time, I met my wife, who's American, and we were dating long distance from London to New York. And I start, after about a year, I started uh, looking for a job in New York and I got a job working at the Booking Group, which is a Broadway booking agency. I got the job as the assistant to the president and... I was a pretty terrible assistant. <laughs> you know, in London, I'd been making deals and promoting shows mm. and I was running to get uh, dry cleaning and PDA batteries changed and things mm. like that. So it was, it, was, uh, it, it was an experience. Thankfully, a position opened up within the agency where I was able to become the contract manager. And really that set me on my stage to building the contacts that I have now because at that time, the agents booked the show, but the contract manager negotiated all the expenses and... And we had big shows, we had Rent, we had Showboat, we had Annie. So I was talking to presenters all around the country. That was pretty exciting. That's definitely how I built my relationships. And then I became an agent of the booking group. So that's um, 99 to 2005. And in 2005, my wife and I decided to leave New York City and we moved up to the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I got to program a, a venue, the Colonial Theatre, which had been dark for 20, uh, sorry, for 50 years. And they just renovated it. And I got to program the inaugural season, which mm-hmm. was a really amazing experience and sort of really connected me to the community and settled us in a new place. It was, it was quite fantastic. And then we had our first child and my wife is a clinical social worker working in a, uh, a very intense setting where they were treating treatment resistant people in an open setting so she after her her maternity leave went back to work for two days and was like yeah i don't want to do this anymore yeah so i um was able to get a job back in new york working for apa agency for the performing arts and i was able to work from home three days a week and go down into the city it was a great job but but in the end it it was just too hard and in 2008 i set up shore entertainment group and went out on my own and for those of you that can remember 2008 was the financial meltdown <laughs> yes. not a, yeah so not I, a great time. was it was a, it was a scary time after spending most of our savings we got through and the agency sort of gained some traction and and uh, here we are in 2023 and we're still going so i guess we're oh. about to celebrate our 15th anniversary or we just celebrated our 15th anniversary our 16th season and um it's been an incredible journey really that is quite an incredible journey so yeah. going back to starting that what was yeah. that like like what what went into starting shaw entertainment group the travel to new york and being away from the family was really challenging mm-hmm. i came to the conclusion that the best thing for me was to be working for myself so then in starting shaw entertainment group was the intention to be a family programming agency? Like what was the intent when you first started? The intent was to be really a general agency. 
I was hoping to represent some music acts, uh, one that I'd brought from the UK and um, some other artists. Uh, Bill Blagg, who I'd met at an Arts Midwest, was the first artist assigned to the agency. But I represented uh, a cross-section of performers, some music, and uh, at that first Arts Midwest, I met uh, David Epley, the artist that is Dr. Kaboom. Mm. We were introduced by uh, a colleague, Tina McPherson, who had helped him develop his show. And she said to us, you guys should work together. So I worked with Bill and I worked with Dr. Kaboom and I had some other music artists. But I um, had the most success with those artists that were making work for family and young audiences. And then I found a community at IPEI, International Performing Arts for Youth, which was still in existence at that time. I had this amazing experience where I represented a company called the Handsome Little Devils, and they're still going in Denver. They, they're not necessarily doing performing arts anymore, but they're creating installations. We had a showcase at IPEI, a full showcase, and technically everything went wrong with the showcase. Oh, no. Yeah, so it was one of those things where you're sitting at the back of the hall and the showcase is on the stage and you can see the dates disappearing off your date sheet as oh. it's happening. What was particularly funny is, you know, I was aware of that, of course, but then you're in the exhibition hall and everybody's walking by you, people you know really well, and they're walking by you with the, your their eyes down on the ground and they're not making eye contact. Oh, oh, and no. they're like, well, look, I know this. Yeah. So... After a while, a dear colleague, who uh, Colleen Porter, who unfortunately has passed away, she was the head of TYA at Cleveland Playhouse Square. She came over to me and she said, that was effing shit, wasn't it? <laughs> yep. She's <laughs> like, but I can see the kernel of the show there. And do you think the company would be interesting? I've got a little bit of money left in my budget. Do you think the company would be interested in coming to work with a, di a new director to help them find their way in the show. Nothing like that ever happened to me before. Yeah. I'd never had a presenter be like, oh, by the way, you know, I've got this, I've got this little line item in my budget and I can help you out here. Whilst the show never regained the momentum it had going into that showcase, the work with the director really did help the show and we did have a successful touring life thereafter. Mm. Having found that community, I decided to focus in on performing arts for young audiences. You know, you're not competing with William Morris or CAA. You're just competing <laughs> with the Holdens, who are an amazing <laughs> booking agency. It's true. And, and I found a home there with... The thing I love about it is that I'm able to use my skills, which I've developed over years doing rock and roll, Broadway. I love using my skills for good in the community. Mm -hmm. The thing I love the most is that uh, children's audience is the most honest audience. They're not going to be polite for you. If they don't like it, you know it so soon because they're fidgeting they're talking to their friends the noise level goes up they're not being polite they're just being honest and that is amazing and it separates the wheat from the chaff you know we're, we're very lucky we represent some really wonderful artists that's one of the tests standing at the back of the hall can they hold the audience can they take them on a journey i, I just love it yeah so let's talk about that doing good like doing the most good look one of the things that i've always loved about you is just the honesty and love for the all of the artists that you book I think you and I've had this conversation multiple times where I love the fact that when I go into your booth, you tell me about the artist that your new artist on the roster, even if I can't book it, just because you're genuinely excited that they're doing this, that you get to represent them. Yeah. So obviously there is some criteria that goes into that. Like you have a discerning taste that, you know, this is what you want to represent because it excites you. Two questions like one, can you talk about what you're looking for when you're looking for something and then two like where do you find it like how do you find a new artist that you want to have on your roster 
I work with Sherry Leathers now. Sherry was the Senior Director of Programming at TPAC in Nashville for more years than she probably cares to remember. We like to work with artists that make the hairs on their arms stand up, mm. that are doing something in the world. It's hard to say when that comes to you. I mean, we go to festivals, mm -hmm. uh, we see shows at venues, and often artists will approach us. Gotcha. So, I mean, it's sort of one of those things like you, you know it when you see it. It's hard to yeah, describe it. It's you know hard it when to you describe see it. it. But we, and, and we work with a variety of artists from people making baby circus to uh, large scale musicals that tour with 10 people and a bus and a truck. We know it when we see it. The challenge is that when you're representing an artist, you're in a relationship with that artist mm -hmm. and you're trying to do your best for that artist. And I always, I always liken it to a marriage because you've got to have communication. There's good times, there's bad times, <laughs> right? Sometimes you get the date, sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you'll disagree about things. So it's a very caring relationship as well. And so for us, we're at that point where we don't really have capacity to take on any more artists because we're giving so much to each of the artists on the roster. Mm -hmm. There's only so many hours in the day. Well, and if you do that, I mean one of your other artists starts to suffer. I mean, you essentially have to start choosing favorites. Yes, and that's, no, that's right. That'd be tough. And also the more artists you have on the roster, uh, when you're talking to a presenter, if you talk about five artists and they're like, oh, I like that. Oh, that's interesting. And, and then by the time you get down to number 11 or 12 and they're like, their eyes are glazed over, they can't do it, you know. Right. There's a, there's a reality to the capacity of people to book shows. Yeah. Yeah. Circling back to when, when you were like looking for an artist, like finding an artist. Yeah. So how I, I can give you some examples. Yeah. Of, so, uh, so as I mentioned, Dr. Kaboom before, you know, we were connected by a presenter, we hit it off and we've been working together ever since, you know, 15 years later, mm -hmm. the Kennedy center who we proudly represent, uh, one day I got a phone call saying, Hey, we're going back on the road and we're looking for agents and we're talking to some of your colleagues, but are you interested and trying to keep a lid on my uh, emotions as I was <laughs> running around the office. I was like, oh, yes, no, I think we could find some space in our roster for you if, if that works out, as I'm jumping up and down as if I just scored the World Cup winning goal. So that that was pretty amazing. Eric Carl with the company Arch8, who we represent, we saw, their, we saw Eric do a piece called No Man is an Island at the International Performing Arts for Youth. And it was one of the most mind-blowing pieces of art I've ever seen. This guy is lying there and you don't know what's going on, and he's a big man. And then a, a smaller dancer comes in and for a 15-minute piece stands on the body of the man on the floor and doesn't fall off and manipulates him. And wow. then in the end, they're both, they both stand up and the smaller dancer is on the shoulders of the adult dancer, of the bigger dancer. It's one of those things that even now, it's sort of mind-blowing, the piece. Yeah. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. And so I went up to Eric and I said, hey, <laughs> can we represent you? We uh, have represented him now since, I think, 2015. There are many different ways. Mm -hmm. So can I, so when you have that moment where you're like, that moment of discovery when you are like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. I, I want this artist. Yeah. And you walk up to somebody randomly or you maybe have an established, how does that conversation go? And what is the trust that you have to build with an artist to get them to sign with you? Well, like, you, what is that process like? Well, of course I turn my accent up. <laughs> Charmed, I'm sure. It didn't really work with Eric, who was, du you know, American Dutch. It is a process, but 
hi, I'm Simon Shaw. This is what I do. This is the, these are the artists we represent. These are the people we work with. We'd be really interested in working with you. If you'd like to speak to presenters we work with, or this is what we think we can do for you. This is what we think your fee could be. And these are the people we think we could book with you. Sort of goes like that. I mean, uh, Dominic Moore Dunson, for example, who is an artist that we now represent. We first met Dominic in 2016 at IPE, where he was an artist in residency, and he gave a keynote speech about that experience. And my colleague and I at the time, at the end of his speech, we looked at each other and we were both crying. And I went up to Dominic and I said, Dominic, if there's ever anything I can do for you, let me know. Always be here. Dominic was a part of In That Dance Theatre and created a piece called The Black Card Project, which was all about a, um, a, a young African-American boy and learning what it meant to be black because he'd mm. been homeschooled. And he was doing that within Inlet Theatre, but it was a project that they wanted us to represent. So we were able to work with him on that. He subsequently left Inlet and we continued to represent him. And now we're helping him develop pieces. He's working on a piece currently called, uh, about memory loss called the Remember Balloons. Probably five years between our first conversation and our connection as agent and artist. So there are many ways. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I've, I've been learning more about you or from you over this past year is the things that you help coordinate for your artists that are outside of that traditional booking. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, most of the time when we think about relationships with artists and agents, we think about like, oh, like Simon's job is using Dominic as an example, getting Dominic a show at a theater doing those kind of things. But outside of that, like you are also helping like grow their audience and helping them commission pieces and build their pieces. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like the, the additional things that you're doing for artists outside of just getting them a date to perform a show that's already done? Well, along with Sherry, we're, we're guiding artists in what we think presenters need, you know, using Dominic as an example, uh, we help Dominic in his negotiations with the author and the illustrator of the book, The Remember Balloons, and we were integral in creating that licensing agreement. We're integral now in helping him find places to develop the work, Mm -hmm. and then we will book shows with Dr. Kaboom. I've helped him. We, coming out of the pandemic, we decided that it was Edinburgh or bust. Mm. And so was that, was that his choice or was that his thought? He's like, I want to take this international or we we've talked about the fringe for years. I I looked at my notes and the first time we talked about it was in 2012, Mm. you know, coming out of the pandemic, it was just that thing where we wanted to do something that felt good (laughs) and we could be amongst an audience. And so we had this amazing experience where we uh, fundraised through crowdsourcing Mm. And we came up with the idea that uh, you could buy a pin to support his first trip to the fringe. And we put the price of that pin at $35. And we had this amazing experience where people, we we raised over $30,000. Wow. And some people were buying a pin for 35 bucks and some people were buying a pin for 35 bucks and chucking on a hundred dollar donation. It's not really a donation. It was for associate producers. And so we went to Edinburgh. We had an amazing time. David did 19 shows in 19 days, which is brutal. We created an audience there and we went back this year. Uh, We did a small fundraiser, but we thankfully had the money to go. Increased his business by 90%, which was really exciting. And now we're getting some interest in international bookings and we'll go back to Edinburgh next year with a new show. 
and uh, hope that we can build on that audience. So that's an example of not necessarily booking a show into a PAC. Yeah. So mm-hmm. was the was Dr. Kaboom at Fringe, was that your first like Fringe show that you helped program and book and do? Yes. Uh, some of the other artists I represent, I represent, uh, well, we represent a company called Starcatchers, which make work for babies in Scotland. Mm-hmm. So they've done Fringe shows before. Yeah. But it was the first show that, yes, that I've co-produced. In doing that, like, how did you figure out, like, the, the, the ins and outs of that? I mean, was it talking to Starcatcher, like, colleagues in the industry? I mean, because having, having been at the Fringe, like, it's a lot. Yeah. Like, I mean, it can be overwhelming and very intense, and I can only imagine what that's like on the, the artist and, and producer side of yeah. that. So, uh, frankly, we wouldn't have been able to do it without working with a local producer. Mm-hmm. So we worked with somebody who has eight or nine shows on at the Fringe each year. Oh, wow. And they helped us find a PR rep. They helped us with the posters. They helped us with the advertising and making the deal with the venue. And we would have been lost without them. But of course, that's a cost. Like we're, yeah. we're paying them to do yeah. that. But it's definitely been a good investment. So I, I'd be lost. I mean, the, the fringe is a guaranteed way to lose money. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Although we think we made some money this year. I mean, that's a yeah, that's a big win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. We're super yeah. excited. So, Simon, you talked about uh, repping the Kennedy Center and you I actually hosted the tour of Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus a couple of seasons ago, which was we had to do a little rescheduling due to some COVID things and and so on and so forth. But that was like a blockbuster show for the Kennedy Center. If you're not familiar, it's the the Pigeon series from author Mo Willems. And he's, you know, favorite of kids across the United States and around the world. What is it like to be an agent representing a show of that size because you have some artists that are small and intimate and are playing smaller venues and doing engagement work and that sort of thing but then you also had this massive tour yes. with this massive name yes and i, I sold out my school matinee of 1500 seats so i had 1500 preschoolers and kindergartners <laughs> in my theater seeing that show it was Maybe one of the best moments of my career yeah. um, to have that happen. But so what is the difference between repping a show like that, that has lots of production and touring and all that. And then some of these like smaller, more intimate artists that are maybe one or two, three, four in the company. Sure. Like what are the differences between those scales? Well, something like the pigeon is a cultural phenomenon. I, I worked on Broadway at the booking group for six years. And occasionally we would have presenters from out of town saying, oh, my board member's coming to town. Do you think you could get us a ticket to, at the time it was the producers, mm. you know, and we would do our best. And then the pigeon comes along like, <laughs> 10 years later, or however many years later, I was getting phone calls from presenters saying, hey, our board member's in DC and they, or the family member's in DC and they can't get tickets to the pigeon at the Kennedy Center. Do you think you could help us out? I, I had never experienced <laughs> that for one of my shows. So booking something like Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus is a joy because everybody wants to book it. And really you're making sure that the routing works. And in essence, it's almost one of those shows that people will move dates for mm-hmm. because your experience was repeated around the country. Yeah. Like that show sold out. So that's very different to booking a smaller show where maybe you're educating the presenter who then has to educate their audience or convince the team that is supporting them that this show is going to work on their season so you know listen i'm not going to lie to you it's great booking the pigeon (laughs) i'd book the pigeon every year if i could (laughs) but in a great way the kennedy center they don't want to tour the same show every year that's not their mission their mission is to bring new art to the country Mm. and so despite my 
pleading, <laughs> they uh, went in a different direction the second year of the next season. So, yeah, I mean, listen, it's great booking a title, but that they're not everything, but it's it makes it easier. And in having, you know, some bigger titles, like you also have rep like Mermaid Theatre of Nova Scotia, which yes. has literary titles as well. Yes. And those play really well with school many programs. So have you seen a shift in what programmers are looking for, especially in the education sphere, particularly like looking more so for curriculum connections or tie-ins or bigger titles because they're having trouble convincing their organizations that mission-driven programming is more important than the commercial things. Like, have you seen sure. shifts in what programmers are looking for? I think post-pandemic, everybody is trying to make it as simple as possible for their audiences to come back. Even when things were terrible in the pandemic, for us as an industry, I used to console myself by the fact that I wasn't a teacher. Yes. <laughs> right, because yes. I, I can't imagine what that was like. Yeah. So I think that the organizations that are serving teachers around the country and, and bringing kids into buses, I, I would say there's less appetite for risk. I think the political situation in the country means that you can't do everything. Mm. We, for instance, Mermaid Theatre of Nova Scotia created a piece, It's Okay to Be Different, stories by Todd Parr. And we found that in some parts of the country, it's not okay to be different. Or that parents, without reading the book, were phoning up the school saying, we don't mm -hmm. want our kids to mm -hmm. see this piece. So that's jarring. It's right? It's a beautiful piece about, and the arts is all about inclusivity, right? And we're trying to build a better future for all of the kids. And so that was pretty jarring. I would say that there's less appetite for foreign work it's just harder to get here it's more expensive so people are looking very much for curriculum tie-ins there's less opportunity to just have a show for the sake mm -hmm. of great art yeah i would say i in my experience that feels very accurate and while in, in my venue in my state we have not had those conversations about censorship or not be able to program program something because of what's going on elsewhere, um, sitting in calls with my colleagues that work in youth and family programming. That is a very real conversation yeah. Yeah. that we have on a monthly basis. And it is a little jarring. So then if you are working with somebody that is getting that reaction, what is that conversation like? Is it, well, we could pull the show, we can rebook it. Let me help you get different materials. Like what is that conversation like then? Well, I, I think it differs in each circumstance, but the reality is there was nothing wrong with the book. So we explain that, we share archival video, and people can make their own decisions. We found there are certain states now where you have to submit the script to the school district before they will approve. Yeah. Come from a liberal democracy in the old country, <laughs> and it doesn't feel very democratic. No, it does not. And that's a bit concerning. What we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, push at the edges, do it in a way that isn't going to get anybody in trouble, but that the message still comes through. Yeah. Do you, have you seen in working with presenters, you know, you have a sense of what their seasons are like and how many shows they're booking. Has you, have you seen number of slots in a season for family programming expand or contract? I, I think contract, unfortunately. I, mm -hmm. I, I, school and family definitely coming out of the pandemic, reestablishing uh, field trips has been a challenge for many venues. I think anyone who was programming a second show in a day is having challenges with busing and the scheduling. The shows that are commercially successful, I think there's always avenues and opportunities for them. And I, and I think people dealing with harder topics are going to have smaller tours. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is there any advice you would give to a presenter that 
is having a hard time convincing their colleagues, their board to invest in family programming or, you know, youth focused programming? What would be your case that they could use to to help bring more work to their venue? The New Victory Theatre in New York City has uh, published studies that show the benefits of theatre for young audiences for education, for their just general well-being. I think that's a great resource and I'm pretty sure it's available on their website. I would suggest searching for that and sharing it because it's it's incontrovertible evidence Mm -hmm. of the benefits of work for young audiences. So Simon, at the beginning of this, you obviously introduced yourself as an agent and you had a a list there, but you also talked about, you know, you've got a family, you're you're a father. And so things that I'm always curious about, not just for people with families, just in general, is is our struggle and our our love of a work-life balance. Being in the the job that you're in, I mean, it's... There's a lot of travel right now. We are in Indianapolis at a conference and you probably were just in Seattle a couple of weeks ago. Sure. What is that like for you, you know, having a family? Like, yes. what, what, what is that balance for you and how do you strike that? So for me, I'm really lucky and like, it's my company. I make the time. What was interesting is when I worked for other companies, I was always able to take time off really easily. I could switch off. <laughs> right. And now the reality is I probably work most days. There are mm-hmm. days, even if I'm not, at my desk, I'm thinking about things and yeah. mulling things over. But equally, I could be taking my kid to a soccer game and thinking about those things. I'm very much about family first. The work will always be there. And so I'm really lucky. And I, during the pandemic, I was offered the opportunity to go back into more of the commercial Broadway world. And when the offer came in and... I sort of looked at, and you'll get 21 days off. And I was like, yeah, no, that's not for me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do that. Um, So, yeah, I work, basically, I I feel like I work every day, but I also feel like there are most days I'm on holiday as well. Hmm. And the, the beauty of, for me, of working with artists that I really believe in and really respect and, you know, that deliver on the stage is that, it's not really work. My first boss always used to tell me it's much better than working. Yeah. Yeah. How, how old are your kids? My kids, uh, one is about to be 17 and one is about to be 15. Excellent. So 16 and 14. Obviously, like working in this industry, I yeah. imagine they're, they, they've been around it for, you know. They've been um, around. They've seen a yeah. lot of shows. So <laughs> how did, like, so for people who, who have kids or like with families, like there's, I always talk to colleagues and individuals of like, how do you, you know, get your kids involved in the arts or bring them along. So what did you do while your kids are growing up? I took the kids to shows. Uh, when I was programming the Colonial Theatre, they had run of the house whenever they came up to visit. <laughs> so, you know, they would choose their favorite seats and we would see shows there. And they've been to see many of the artists that we represent. I often show them video of shows uh, to see what they think. My youngest is the harshest critic. <laughs> but that's I love good. That you have like a yeah. test audience. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it, and certainly you know they're a little older now, but in the past. But even now, Sophie, my uh, sixteen going on seventeen year old, had a great marketing idea for one of the artists. Like we were in a conversation, and I said, "Hey, I'm here with Sophie. What do you think?" And you know, teenagers have a different view of the world, yeah. and mm-hmm. she's much more knowledgeable about, about certain things than I am, wow. and I work really well. And the artist was thankful. And Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So my youngest now, she sings. And my oldest is uh, a pretty practice stage manager. Mm. And she will be the head stage manager by the time she's a senior at school. Nice. Um, and it's great. So they're, 
you know, they just participated and they, they've seen Broadway shows, they've seen shows in the West End. Uh, Willow, our youngest, came to the Fringe Me, Fringe Me with me one year. Mm. It was the year I had the earliest nights I have, I've had at the Fringe. <laughs> she was like, Dad, I'm exhausted. Can we go home back to the hotel and eat pizza? So like, yeah, but what about the three shows I had tickets for? So that's, that's really, you yeah. know, they are a part of it. And I love they, that. Yeah. You sort of answered this. Do you think either of them will, will go into the business or will, will be part of show business or do something in, in the industry? I, I really don't. I'd be surprised, yeah. but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do at 14 oh, or 17. Yeah. No. yeah. So they definitely have skills and they know their way around a theater. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I'm not sure either, either of them will be performers. So Simon, uh, rumor has it one of our uh, hosts has a time machine. Yeah. Um, so w he has agreed to let us use it. Uh -huh. So I would like to take you back into time. And I think the most logical sense is to take you back to starting your agency in 2008. If you could take yourself back in time to talk to yourself, what advice would you give yourself then? What advice would I? Well, I mean, look, it's the same advice I give to myself now. It's make friends, right? Don't be an asshole. Communicate clearly and be nice to everybody because you never know where you're going to see them again. Excellent. And I talk with the artists all the time and say, you know, go out there and make friends. Just make friends. All right. Well, Simon, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for sitting down with us to have this conversation today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Kevin and Katie, thank you guys so much for finally sitting down with Simon um, and getting his story on the podcast. Absolutely loved it. And I'm just delighted to know that Simon knows how charming his accent is. <laughs> <laughs> this interview has definitely been a long time coming. Um, and honestly, it's been too long to, to get him on, on the show here. But one of the things I really enjoyed about this interview, going back and listening to it was how much he respects and calls out how much Sherry does in his organization. Cause every time you talk about what he's doing or what Shaw entertainment's doing, he's always very quick to say that Sherry's doing this and Sherry's So I really like, there was something that I really loved about him making sure that people know it's, it's not just him and that, you know, he's not, you know, doing quote unquote, all the work. In the same vein as that, Kevin, he speaks so highly of his artists and promotes his artists so well and has so much respect for them. And as we've talked about in, in other ways, artists in this part of the industry don't necessarily get the respect that they deserve or people don't think of this as high quality entertainment. But Simon clearly believes that and he finds artists that are going to bring the best um, to youth and family programming. And I really respect that about him and his process and how he helps develop artists and helps promote them and gives them the best shot that they can possibly get to succeed um, and reach people and bring their art to people. So I, I just really appreciate that about Simon personally. And I thought it was reflected in the conversation we had with him. Well, and especially too in working in youth and family, standing in the back of the hall while an artist is doing their show and seeing if they can hold a group. Um, you know, like I love what Simon says. Children are the most honest audience like because they're not going to be polite. Like they tell you exactly how they feel at, e at each beat, really. Um, and like in booking the artists, he is like sharing his respect that he has like for young people. I was also disturbed and really liked the story about it's okay to be different and the problems that he's had where, you know, some school said they previewed and said, no, it's not okay to do here, which I was 
you know, obviously very disheartened about that, but I was heartened that Simon said, well, we're not changing the art because there's nothing wrong with the art. So we're just going to take it places that, that will have it. Well, and especially that it was never a problem with the actual art because the complaints mm -hmm. were coming from people that hadn't read the book. Mm -hmm. They were going with it just off of the title that triggered something for them, which is a load of shit anyway. And this isn't a past problem. This isn't something that just happened once. This is ongoing. Um, and so, you know, Danielle and I talk with TYA colleagues on a regular basis, and this is something that venues are dealing with, this idea of censorship. Um, it's it's going to be ongoing, and we're going to see it, I'm afraid, more and more. So how are we going to deal with that as an industry? Um, and Kevin, I know that you've run into some of this with Quad City Arts and your programming. Yeah, I mean, we're sort of navigating this in real time because we have a state government who has made a lot of uh, sweeping changes in, in, into education on the Iowa side. And so it dictates what can and cannot go into the public schools or what is considered, quote unquote, training um, or what is considered, you know, uh, mandatory. So what we are doing is honestly having some long conversations with our administrators to make sure that we are programming something that is able to go into their school. The The challenge on that comes into if an, if an artist ever goes into the to a Q&A session, um, because unfortunately in the state of Iowa and some other states in our country, um, you can't talk about uh, if you happen to have a quote unquote untraditional marriage, like you can't talk about that. Um, and it's not necessarily because it's, you know, in, that's not the centerpiece of your art. Um, but if somebody asks you about your, your life or something, and it just so happens like, oh, I was talking with my same sex partner. Um, like that is are things that, you know, can't talk about. While there is a lot of things that are off limits, we're reframing what those like the, the way we talk about things. So for instance, in the state of Iowa, you can't, teach or talk about social emotional learning. Um, but what you can talk about is being a good human um, and just being kind, um, those sort of things. So we're figuring out some of that. But I mean, unfortunately, like one of the things that Simon's talking about and the things that we're facing is it's not the teachers, it's not the adults, um, it's not the administration that's suffering here. Um, it is the kids. Um, it is the youth who are not getting access to a lot of these arts. And a lot of schools are taking this as an opportunity to not book anything um, because they don't want to get in trouble, because they don't have the the literal capital to fight off some sort of, I guess, lawsuit. I really like that he started in a much more commercial realm with the agencies uh, that he was working in. and And then evolved as uh, a person in the arts and as an agent to to find his niche within um youth programming and to be able to do it and take it to such a, a great level of excellence and and be one of the many companies that are setting the standard for what we should expect for youth programming I do agree. Simon has an incredibly strong roster and I just loved his comment about competing with the Holden <laughs> <laughs> and shout out to our friends at Holden arts and associates. Um, so we love, we love the gals over there. And I think too, like we as presenters just sort of see um, agents rosters change from year to year. And we don't often know like the backstory of that, but like just hearing the example of Simon making a connection with uh, Dominic Moore Dunson and sort of following the trajectory of just what he needed at different points. And I think he said it's, you know, been six years since he first met him and said, whatever you need, I'm here to now getting to a point where 
you know, they're working together um, on a much more regular agent artist um, relationship basis. I mean, that's that there's so much work in there that we just don't see like Simon likened to a marriage um, is really is really incredible. I also liked learning that Simon actually spent a, a year presenting uh, in Massachusetts. I never knew that about him. And he later on talks about presenting commercial work versus uh, artistic or cultural work. And obviously that's a big topic that we're all talking about right now in the industry post pandemic. And it's something that nobody has an answer to. And, and it goes to the point that we're talking a lot about now in the industry about becoming less adventurous because we're so worried about the bottom line because audiences are not fully coming back and a lot of funders have gone away and a lot of other issues like that that are underpinning these decisions for us. And, and it's become a, a big challenge. You know, there's there's all kinds of art that deserves to be put in front of audiences and and communities need. And so it's, you know, he, I don't think he mentioned an answer in there. I think he just talked about how that is an issue and that's a trend. There's been a shift over the last five years to doing a lot more commercial work, but it's not... For us, for our organization, it's not in sacrificing the artistic work. It's actually to fund and underwrite the artistic work. And we're able to do more now than we ever were because of the commercial success that we have with our commercial programming. And it's finding that balance that we've now been able to restart our youth programming series. And we're bringing, we're able to bus kids back in for the first time. And it's, it's the idea of shifting the model without sacrificing the art. So shifting the model to, to facilitate more commercial programming, big names, marquee acts, but they are there to then help fund the artistic endeavors that we wanna do through that balance. Well, thanks friends for uh, chatting with me today. And thank you, Katie, for joining me on this interview with Simon. And thank you, Simon, for taking some time out of your busy schedule at Max to sit down with us to talk about your career. So thank you all. And we'll see you next week on There's No Business Like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I-ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. Hey, everyone. It's Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts, and I'm joined here with my friend. <laughs> Just don't, don't look, look at Danielle. Don't look at Danielle. Don't look at Danielle. Her, it's her voice. It's my voice. <laughs> but it was so high. It's like your voice sucking on you. Hey, everybody, it's Kevin. I thought he sounded fine. (laughs) He sounded like Kevin. No, I was making faces, too. I was like, what? What are you doing? Yeah, no, me laughing is justified when Josh does it also. (laughs) Josh is not a good moniker for what's right. That's a fair point. Hey everybody, welcome to There's No Business Life. Why I'm are you Kevin. so why do you sound like me? You have That's by your far Josh the best impression. radio voice. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Just use it. Hi, everybody. I'm Josh. And welcome to another episode of There's No Business Like. I can't. That's perfect. There you go. That's going to be our intro for the holiday episode because you just sounded like Santa. Oh, God.